0: This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria.
1: Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris.
0: Hey, I'm Rod and I'm from Peru.
1: Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day, with everyone, from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our carbon sessions because it's not too late.
2: Hello everyone. This is Brian Tormey and I'm here with Joshua Spodek. PhD, MBA, and host of the award-winning This Sustainable Life podcast, and a four-time TEDx speaker, a best-selling author of Initiative, and the other book, Leadership Step-by-Step, a professor at NYU, published in The New Yorker, and an amazing leadership coach. And he is here with us to talk about his projects and missions that he's doing to help make a change in the world, and myself as well as my co-host, Olabanji, are very excited to chat with him. Olabanji, why don't you tell us a short bit about yourself and your engagement with the Carbon Almanac?
0: Sure, thank you, and thanks, Josh. It's good to talk to you today. Yeah, the Carbon Almanac is an initiative that empowers everyone to be able to have conversations about climate change. With the Carbon Almanac, what it does is, you are suddenly empowered, right? You can go from zero to 100, by just reading the first chapter of the Almanac. It's a collection of truths, data, charts, and amazing stuff that allows you to understand, first of all, what climate change is all about, where we are at the world, you know, right now, and what you can do to make a change. So it's an amazing tool. I'm a contributor in the Carbon Almanac. I podcast here with some of the amazing people, you know, Brian, Leakey, Jen, and some of the, you know, some of the best people in the world that I've ever met. So. Yeah, that's it for sure. Okay. Well,
2: speaking of doing podcasts, let's dive into today's with our fabulous guest, Josh. So Josh, you know, thank you for joining us. We're really appreciative of your time. And I know, you know, one of the interesting things that's already arisen in our conversation this morning is in order to help conserve power, you were like, hey, let me, May is it okay if I go off video? Because that's going to help me conserve power. Can you tell us a little bit why, you know, what brings that about? It's this, this journey you've been on for the last six months, and our listeners and myself and all are excited to hear what you've been up to these past six months.
3: Well, yeah, it's hard to, be, to figure out where to begin. I'll, I'll start at the end, but, but I'll note that there's a lot leading up to it. I didn't just decide to disconnect out of the blue. But six months ago... No, I have to go back to it. Do you mind if I take a, a bit of a longer story? Yeah, because, uh, please, tell us. If you asked me 10, 15 years ago about the environment, I'd say, yeah, it sounds pretty serious and someone should do something about it. Of course, my personal actions wouldn't make a difference and only governments and corporations can act on the scale that we need. But I have faith that you know people figure it out. Maybe I could work on some invention that might have some impact, but not much would make much of a difference. And I looked down one day at my garbage in my kitchen and realized I was producing... A lot of garbage. I probably empty it at least once a week. And I thought, well, maybe I can't change the whole world, but I mean, this garbage, no one else can take responsibility for. I am the only one who can, and I feel responsible too. You know, it took me like six months to implement the following idea. I thought, I wonder if I could go for one week without buying any packaged food because most of the garbage was from food packaging. And it took me six months to finally say, to go from analyzing and planning and thinking like, what will I do day one, day two, day three, to eventually just saying, look, I'm not gonna die. I'll just start right now. And Mm -hmm. all these little questions of like, do I count food in my pantry? Can I eat that if it's packaged or not? And all these little things that like, once I actually started doing it, then I had to solve all these problems. And I thought that living in Manhattan with all these restaurants around that I'd be depriving myself and instead, I found that, well, it took me, I mean, I made, I made it actually two and a half weeks before I bought my first packaged food, which was surprisingly longer than I expected. I didn't know if I would make the week. And then over the next couple of months, I thought, you know, maybe I can't keep quite to zero for the whole time, but I'll do my best to, you know, get less packaging than I used to. And this led to getting a lot more fresh fruits and vegetables and getting from bulk, bring my own bags. And you know, this was the first time in my life that I boiled dried beans on the stove, which I'd never done before. So I'm, I'm not proud that I made it to my 40s before doing that. But as I cooked more and more with more and more fresh stuff, I went from just having steamed vegetables all the time to making really good food. And I found that contrary to my expectations, I was spending less money. When I was in a hurry, I could make food faster. It tasted better. And... I started doing workshops up in the Bronx and in food deserts to help bring farmers markets to other places because I have easy access here. And it was just a pure positive in my life, not just a net positive. There were no downsides. I mean, except for that six months of really bland stuff, but that was kind of like my training. And I should also mention that that was eight, nine years ago, and along the way, I've emptying my garbage less and less. So my garbage today is, I'm just about three years on one load. And it, it, it feels, even that feels like a lot to me because it's less and less. So most of that is from two 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 and a half years ago. And again, this is just pure improvement to my life that I would have thought would have been a loss. And as much as the physical change is meaningful, my impact is just one person, but the emotional and mental shift, that was the big thing. Because I started thinking, why did I think that this was going to be so awful? What else in my life have I come to believe through cultural whatever would be awful, but might also be awesome? So a couple of years later, I challenged myself to go for a year without flying. This was after watching a video where I learned that flying, the guy speaking was British. So he said flying London to LA and back was a year's worth of driving. And I thought, again, I can't fix the whole world, but I can take responsibility for my stuff. And I don't wanna pollute the world. I know that people are gonna be breathing in those fumes and people are displaced from their land to get that oil, building the plane, all the embedded pollution in that. And so I thought, I wonder if I could go for, you know, a week wouldn't be enough. I eventually settled on a year without flying. And again, same thing. I thought this was gonna be the worst year of my life. I thought, you know, family, work, all these commitments, what am I gonna do? And I just saw everything as it came. And that was 2016 and I haven't flown since. And the longer I go without flying, the more flying just, it's just wretched to me. It just sounds like a terrible idea, not just for the pollution, but for what it does to our cultures. Anyway, that led a while later to, oh yeah, I was reading this article on how much, much of the world doesn't refrigerate like we do. They ferment and have different food systems. And I looked at my fridge and I thought, That's my biggest source of pollution right now. And I started thinking, I wonder how long I could go without using the fridge. What would I do? Do I have to learn to ferment? And part of me, something in my mind said, that's that analyzing and planning. that takes a long time that just do it. So before I could stop myself, I went over and unplugged the fridge. And the first time I made it three months, (laughs) then six and a half months. And now I'm in my second year and I, I now having made it a full calendar year, I'll probably, I may never plug the fridge in again. I'm not sure. And once my bills started coming down to my electric bill, there's 18 to $20 that I can't do anything about. That's just being connected. I guess I could completely just like tell Con Ed to close the account, but I haven't done that yet. But as my bill started getting to like a dollar, $2 a month for the power that I was using, I started thinking and I put up a blog post a couple of years ago. I wonder if I could get to zero. Could I go for one month without using any electrical power from the grid? And this is in Manhattan. And so I posted to my blog, can anyone help me? Does anyone know solar? I didn't know anything about solar. I mean, I knew what solar was and I have a PhD in physics, so I know power and energy and things like that, but I didn't practically know what devices I should buy and how do I connect them. And I I live in a a co-op building, it's a big building. So I know that the co-op isn't gonna let me install stuff. I, I get some light through the windows so no one answered to my blog post, but I just started going online and I mean, Craigslist, looking at what's used. And eventually I found out I should get a a battery and a solar panel. And I got a portable solar panel and a portable battery because I can't do this stuff per- permanently. And I just bought them from used and figured, I'll try it out and figure out how it goes. And I'm not trying to solve all the world's problems. I'm just trying to experiment to see if I can go for a month without using the grid. So I guess one of them broke and had to get a fix, but eventually on May 22nd, I had just made my stew with a pressure cooker powered from the battery, which was powered by the solar panel. And I was thinking, all right, I got some stew that'll last me a few days. I got 20% left on the battery. I wonder, like next, what should I check? I don't really know how much power a floor lamp is gonna use. I don't really know how much my computer's gonna use. And I start thinking maybe I should wait until the Con Ed bill rolls over, which is on the seventh of the month. And then I realized, Oh, this is that thought that this is that analyzing and planning that always gets in the way. Just, I know I'm not going to die. I know no one's going to get hurt. I'll find stuff out. This thought entered my mind, I guess I just started. So without any planning beyond just getting the, the panel and the battery, I just said, all right, I'll start now. And I really had no idea how I'd make it past when I ran out of the stew. I didn't know how, how to make it past a couple days, but my goal was one month. And so now I'm in my sixth month and I had no idea how I would do it. I'm ending up going up and down the stairs. It's 11 flights up to the roof and back. So I do that twice a day, maybe three or four days a week. Well, the past few days, it's been very rainy. So I haven't been able to do it for a while. And I'm just solving things as they come. And it's turning out as I kind of knew, but... I knew intellectually, but didn't know until it actually happened it was this fun. I'm getting in touch with the seasons and, and the sunlight and all sorts of things. And also, again, I, I should mention, I am doing it for myself because I would like to reduce my pollution. I don't want to hurt people. And I want to clarify here. There's change in the world, but there's my contribution. I know that the pollution I cause is going to hurt people and wildlife. So even if I can't change the world, I wouldn't wanna hurt people, even if I can't change the world. But the bigger picture is that this is a leadership exercise. I don't believe that anyone can lead another person to live by values that they live the opposite of. And so how else can I learn to do stuff without doing it? I mean, I have to practice. So I'm learning a lot of what works and what doesn't work. You know, The big challenges of changing global culture is not, do people know enough of how carbon dioxide traps heat? That science is very interesting, but it's our emotions, our stories, our images, our, our role models, and that's culture. And giving people facts and numbers doesn't change that. Role models is a big thing. Knowing what leads people what leads people to say, what I do doesn't matter, when everyone knows that that's not the case. What leads people to say, only governments and corporations can make a difference? When we know that how to change governments is, we have to act. That's like the finish line for government and corporation to act. How do we get there? That was a long answer. <laughs> but and
2: and and it can branch in so many great ways because you have covered so much. But first off, thank you for doing all that leadership activity. And it seems that you're really an experimental learner, writer, leader. You know, trying to take your values and figure out how to live by them. You, you recently interviewed A.J. Jacobs, another, I think, you know, famous experimental learner, writer, leader. And I liken some of the things I've seen in what you're doing to this other author. Gretchen Rubin has these four motivational tendencies that she writes about in habit formation, and she breaks the people into four groups or your tendencies into full direction and, and I feel like you fall very squarely inside her questioner one, which is sort of like having questions about the world, but then like really being internally motivated. And I think I'm curious, you know, as you've been leading in these ways and sort of sharing your journey with so many people, do you have stories and, and sort of experiences with other people that you've interacted with that they, maybe they're not that questioner. They're not the person who's going to go just decide to unplug their fridge and see what happens or just decide, no, let's do it today. I'm going to stop using electricity today, even though my battery is at 20%. You know, they might be people who fall more into those other categories like obliger or upholder or even rebel using Gretchen's uh, construct. Have you had experiences with some people and and sort of, can you share some of those with us of people who may not, be themselves in a place where they're they're intrinsically motivated to go try and forge a new trail and experiment themselves. can you talk to you a little bit of that
3: One comes to mind there's like uh, the people I want to lead are going to be the people who can make the biggest difference. so these are going to be c-suite executives at major polluting companies, politicians, elected officials, also uh, people in culture, singers. Athletes, movie stars, television stars. These are the people that are the most effective role models. And there's one executive at this oil company, and I can't say who it is and I can't say where it is because we have a working relationship. But he, for the longest time, we were keeping in touch, but not really talking about energy and pollution. But I really wanted to work with him. And So I've developed something called the Spodek method, which is a a way to work with someone to evoke their emotions and feelings and values around the environment in a supportive, non-judgmental way, and then lead them to come up with a way for them to act on those emotions, on what the environment means to them. And this is a very different, subtle, but critically different thing than to say, here's what you have to do. It's what do you like to do? And how can you do something like that relevant to the environment? And by making it meaningful in that way, because they're acting on their values, not what the New York Times tells them they're supposed to do or Greenpeace tells them that they're supposed to do, then big or small doesn't matter because they're going to like it and they're going to do it more. So he was resisting. I kept saying to him, let's do the Spodek method because I think once you do it, you'll really appreciate the way that I work and you'll like doing more. And he was like, no, 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 no. So we keep the conversation going. And at one point he talks about visiting a relative and he sees something that he had read about that he hadn't seen with his own eyes. And that was that near this relative, it was his grandmother and and there was a forest near her where he used to play as a kid and it didn't get cold enough in the winter. And there's a beetle that could continue to grow that normally would not grow because of the cold. And the beetle had just eaten up this whole forest. So I haven't seen a picture of it, but it sounds like it was just stumps. Acres and acres of stumps. And he was heartbroken because it was something as a kid. And so even though this was a statement of something that mattered to him, and I walked him through the Spodak method without asking him, but since it was out there, I could work with it. And he decided that the way he would act on this was that he takes a walk in the park near where he lives. What he committed to was to pick up litter in that park to keep it a little cleaner. And it evolved in the month or so that he was doing it, I think. I forget exactly how long he was doing this, to involve his daughter. And his daughter started, uh, when he would go to the playground with his daughter, they would pick up litter together. And people around them at first were like, what's wrong with you guys? And then eventually they started picking up litter too. And it became something between him and his daughter that was fun. So this is not an obligation, this is not, in in, in his mind, he's doing something that he enjoys, partly in reaction to the the magnitude of the feeling he had when he saw the the wrecked forest. Then, because of this, he starts saying, all right, let's bring you into the company now. And he works with people in the C-suite of one of the major oil companies in the world. And in order to bring a new leadership coach it has to go through several steps. They have a lot of internal leadership coaching and a lot of inner practices. So we have to present how I work for their internal review to make sure that it works. And we're working on creating this presentation. We're using past presentations of things that have worked and the usual corporate stuff. And the, the, the method by the way is in corporate speak would be, this is a mindset shift followed by a process of continual improvement. And I start with a mindset shift with the Spodick method. And then the continual improvement is, you know, we always overestimate, not always, but we tend to overestimate what we can do in a day, but underestimate what we can do in a year. And so lots of these little changes add up to a lot in one person if you keep doing it, right? You can't just do one thing and stop. Anyway, we get to doing this presentation and we're reforming it. And in the presentation, we're putting all these numbers and how it works and past clients and things like that. And then he puts in He says, here's this picture, and it's a picture of his daughter at a playground, and she's standing there with a big smile on her face, and she's holding up a piece of litter. He said that we were at the playground together, and she saw a piece of litter. She was on the monkey bars or whatever, and she just runs over and picks up the litter, and she's so happy that she's got it. And that goes into the presentation, because what's gonna make this work at the company is not the numbers. The oil company knows. They know the numbers better than anyone they know what works what doesn't work and so forth what they don't know is that when they do this they the executives are going to connect with their kids more they're going to love the experience on a human level that is something that you can't fake i can say to someone you're going to like doing this because it's going to bring you closer to your family it's going to bring you closer to everyone in the world it's going to Connect to you. You know, most people think, oh, if I can't fly, I'm not going to get to go see Machu Picchu. I'm not going to get to see all these different cultures. And I'm not going to see my mom on the other coast and things like that. But when we see that taking others into account for everything that we do, because the pollution, if you pollute the air, you pollute everyone's air, we're all connected in this way. That's a beautiful thing. That's not a burden that I have to take into account. Oh, every time I do something, I have to think about every other person on the planet. That's glorious. And now he could show that. From his personal experience. And you might say, well, picking up litter in the park is not a big deal. Well, I'm going to be talking, well, we can't be for sure, but it looks like I'll be on a path toward talking to the C suite of a major oil company. That could be some pretty big change. And that's why I don't think that you can get there without genuinely, authentically living the values and enjoying them. Actually, if I go back to that first time when I was avoiding packaged food for a week, there was a part of me that wanted to hate the experience, that wanted to feel miserable and realize if the cure is worse than a disease, I would take the disease and just say, well, if we go down, we go down, but at least I'll have fun enjoying the. I, I kind of wanted that to happen because it would have been so much easier just to say, I throw out my hands. What can I do? Only governments and corporations can make a difference. I can't make a difference, but that was wrong. It's a much better life living humble to nature than... There's a quote that came from Abraham Lincoln. Actually, I got to say, because video uses so much power, I'm reading a lot more books these days because I'm not Mm -hmm. watching videos. And I've read two biographies of Abraham Lincoln. And both great. I can't believe I've made it this long without learning more about our 16th president. Well, America's 16th president. I'm American. And it's. I'm not going to say it word for word. But it says, the worst thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you know is wrong. Once you do something you know is wrong, you have to convince yourself why it's okay. You have to suppress and deny and twist yourself up inside. And it's, I mean, Lincoln knew what happened when people did that. But we have a culture built on polluting, knowing that we're polluting, knowing that it's wrong, and internally twisting ourselves up to say why, oh, the plane was gonna fly anyway or what i do doesn't matter or only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that we need it twists us up it, that is not worth it and i could only have found that out by actually living this way and finding the glory in it i don't know if i've gone too off too off topic or too aside to no too, no any I... sidebars
2: i th- I think this is beautiful and and we're we're that's what conversations are all about is figuring out and finding out where they go. you know I think a lot of what you're talking about in this example of this executives and sort of his resistance, maybe having a conversation about how to think about things, but then you sort of like maybe without his awareness leading him down this pathway speaks a little bit to i think something that seems to underlie so much of your your writing and your leadership is behavior change and pattern changing, you know, even the term, you know, the sustainable life, like it's about changing those patterns. And, and you recently had a fabulous podcast interview with, with Holly Whitaker, the, the author of a book, Quit Like a Woman, that explores her pathway to forego alcohol or rather live a sober lifestyle. And, and in that interview, you, you dig a lot into the correlation between alcohol addiction, and our addiction to fossil fuels, or maybe rather our addiction to the belief that the things we can derive from fossil fuels, faster this, cheaper that, easier that, is itself an addiction, an addiction to that feeling and belief that that life will be easier or better. Can you share some thoughts on like this idea of behavior change and, and that mindset change and, and the correlation over to other kinds of addictions where... When we step back, you know, Holly refers to alcohol as sort of like our modern day cigarette, right? And can you step back and help us think about our patterns and behaviors as, as in our lives and how those are themselves addictions and how we might consider changing those behaviors?
3: Yeah, there's lots of definitions of, of addiction and I don't claim to be an addiction specialist, but. A lot of it is that it's something around choosing something that you know has long-term uh, adverse effects for the short-term reward and maybe some attempt to try to stop and inability to stop. A lot of people connect them with chemicals like drugs and alcohol and, and nicotine. The, the specialists recognize things like gambling and some we will say video game addiction and social media. Different experts will qualify these things as, as addictions as well. And when you're addicted, you know, you make these choices that you wouldn't otherwise, and it's very difficult to get out. Someone who's addicted to heroin, if you suggest to them that you'll, you'll enjoy life more, earning an honest living, sleeping regularly, exercise, eating healthy, they're going to compare that to the jolt of pleasure that they get, that works every time. And they're going to look at the withdrawal and say, no way am I going to do that. that. That sounds square and I don't want to live that way. This is, this is a better life. Now, somewhere deep inside, maybe they feel otherwise. It's very difficult to, I mean, if, a, if the person who's addicted has not themselves said, I'm addicted and I want to change. The big thing is to get them to where they say that themselves. So I wanted to talk to people who are experts in addiction. And in Holly's case, she drank a lot of alcohol and then stopped. And then her book, I highly recommend, because whether you've been addicted to alcohol or not, so much of what she says rings true. And so much of her attitude is so like, she talks about how alcohol was such a positive thing in her life until it wasn't. And her, how do I put it? Outrage at the world, at a system around us, which says, I mean, it's normalized and made even Adorable. Like have you ever seen like the shirts that say like mommies drink champagne or Chardonnay because babies cry or they have these cute little phrases and stuff. And she was seeing like how much society condones this. And even their attempts to to hold things back, drink responsibly. The first word is drink responsibly. The adverb modifies it. They're still saying drink. (laughs) That's the way of like reducing drinking is to say drink. And our world is like that. And she goes through and, lear- I mean, she eventually learned about how alcohol, what it does to the, to the body and what it does to a culture and things like that. And, 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 and the book is really engaging. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to have her on. She, she's as engaging in conversation. So how do we, if we're addicted to things that fossil fuels bring, I mean, most people, if I propose to them avoiding packaged food, they, I mean, I used to have ice cream in my freezer always. I just always had ice cream in the freezer. I always had Snyder's so of a Hanover pretzels in my cupboard mm. because I loved them. And I couldn't think of going without them. And I always thought oh, I'm eating too much of the stuff. But when I finished the package, I'd get another one. Mm. Now those things are disgusting to me. Like I, there's not enough money in the world to get me to get me a, to eat a spoon of ice cream. It's just not in a, not going to happen. Mm. I, it just, it's, I mean, it really, it goes to the disgust center of my brain. Mm. And she had that too. And... But I got to tell a story that's not about Holly. I mean, definitely read her book if you're trying to see how you can get around to change your behavior to where it's something where you feel like, I know this is hurting others. I know it's hurting myself, but I can't stop myself. When we do something we know is wrong, we convince ourselves why it's not. And we suppress the part of us that says otherwise. But I got to tell the story about one time I was walking through Washington Square Park, which is around the corner from me. It's sort of my backyard, and I pick up litter every day, and since the pandemic, when the heroin, meth, fentanyl, and crack addicts started really populating the northwest corner of Washington Square Park, which is supposed to be you know a really desirable area in the world, but it's, I mean, there are encampments of, of people, and, and fentanyl and meth, the people who use this stuff just throw garbage everywhere. So I told myself, I'm not going to retreat from this. I go pick up at least three pieces of litter in Washington Square Park just to make sure I'm there and the people see me caring and acting. And so I'm going to pick up litter and this one particular day I'm walking through and there's not a lot of people around, but when I go pick up something, this guy sees me and he says, thank you. And he's a construction worker. He's wearing one of those bright yellow vests, somehow off duty. He's holding onto the helmet and I don't know what he's doing there, but we get to talking and... I start talking to him about why I pick this stuff up. And I say, you know, it's nice to pick up the litter, but what it really does is it helps reinforce not to buy packaged food. I tell him about how, you know, at that point, I'm maybe two, two and a half years into one load of garbage. And he's like, wow, that's amazing. And I also say how one of the outcomes of this is that by eating fresh fruit all the time, I can eat as much as I can stuff down my throat because it's all low caloric density. You know, you can't eat that much. I mean, you can't get fat eating spinach. So, and he says, well, I wish I could do that, but I can't. And he indicates that he's obese and he points to his belly. And he's like, I can't do it. There's nothing, I'm too far gone. I'd like to be able to eat that way, but I can't. So I point him over there at the meth and fentanyl people and they're out of earshot, but we can see them. And I say, you know, those people over there are addicted to fentanyl and meth and things like that. And he goes, yeah, I know. And I say, I talked to them. And they tell me that they can't stop what they're doing. Can they? And he looks at me and you can see the gears start turning. And he says, you're right, I can stop. I didn't tell him he could stop. I asked him if they could. And they, you know, I think he knows that they can. And I think he knew that he was using the same excuses that they were. And then a funny thing happened. He gets out some money from his pocket and he's like, take this. And he hands me a $20 bill. I'm like, no, what I, What are you talking about? He goes, take this. I'm like, no, I'm not going to take your money. I don't need it. And he goes, it will be more valuable to me, the lesson, if you take this money from me. I'm like, if this benefits you, fine, I'll take it. And I'll give it to some worthy cause. And he goes, no, no, spend it on yourself. Enjoy it. So now the intellectual awareness that you can stop is different than being able to stop. To Being able to stop and, you know, people... Going, they stop, and then they, they, they're in recovery, and then they, they what's the what's word, they not remission, when they go back again, and, you know, it, it's a cycle. It's, it's difficult. It's challenging. It helps a lot to have role models. It helps a lot to have support, you know, giving people facts, telling a smoker, here's what happens to your lungs, or a drinker, here's what happened to your liver, it's not nearly as effective as being a role model, showing support, non-judgmental support, compassion, But really having gone through it yourself is a really big aid. Giving people facts and numbers, not gonna help, not gonna hurt. I mean, that helps after they've changed. But getting them to where they choose to change, that's a much different, uh, facts and numbers don't help that. I mean, they're not gonna hurt. And sometimes there's someone who's ready to hear it and that fact might be just at, at just the right time. But much more about emotional support, listening, listening to understand, going, you know, meeting them where they are, things like that, and having done it yourself. That's, I mean, that's why I'm unplugging, is, is not for, the, yes, for the individual thing, yes, because I don't want to pollute other people, other people's air and water and, and, and world. And if you look at, I mean, ugh, it's heartbreaking to see the pictures of say Ghana, where, where a lot of e-waste goes, or just the mountains of garbage in other places and people look at that and say, well, they should have better sanitation. I'm like, well, who's profiting from that? That's that's where I, you know, I wanna go to the boardrooms of the people who decide to extract and form the plastic and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say, you know, that's not the only thing to do. We have to stop ourselves. I certainly support Extinction Rebellion and 350.org for protesting and things like that. But something that I saw missing was how do we lead the most influential people with the biggest delta possible. Yeah. We got to do it ourselves first. Got to walk the walk. Yeah, and find the joy in it. I mean, th- there's nothing in me that is, oh, what a burden, what a chore. I'm so deprived. What a sacrifice. I mean, except in the sense of, of you know, I've had a bunch of religious people on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I've had evangelicals, mm-hmm. Trump supporters, hardcore red state politicians, CEOs of very prudent companies. And there's... The reason I mentioned this was in the, in the, certainly in the evangelical community, the word sacrifice is a very mm-hmm. positive thing. So I do sacrifice in that sense or the Michael Jordan sense, like he's he was the first one there and the last one to leave from every practice. Was he sacrificing? I think he really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. And so in that sense, I'm sacrificing if there's a noble part of it or sacrifice if if if... People who leave the party early to go home and they have to feed their dog or walk their dog or take care of their kids, that's not sacrifice. I mean, it is, but it isn't. So in that sense, yes, I am, because it's very rewarding. But it's not I'm not giving anything up. In fact, I I wish that I had started earlier and had not bought into the social, cultural beliefs of what you do doesn't matter and all those lies to support. Here I looked at the quote, Abraham Lincoln, nothing is more damaging to you than to do something that you believe is wrong mm. that's where the that's where that's where the the, the internal conflict and right. corruption begins
2: yeah it's this this theory of cognitive dissonance where like your actions and your beliefs are are in contrary alignment but then you start to as, as you talk about in many of your writings and things start to like just convince yourself why the actions you did do are actually the right ones after all. And this idea of sort of like explaining it to yourself afterwards that we all do. You know, that's one of the powers of our brain is to help soothe that dissonance with, with a new explanation, a new, a new response afterwards. Now, there's this fabulous book by Professor Brian uh, Wansink who digs into this concept. The book was called Mindless Eating. And he digs into this idea of choices made during like moments of consciousness where you're stepping and you're sort of in your what are my values, what are my choices, what am I, I'm thinking about, what I'm choosing to do? And he focuses within the eating construct on what can you do in that moment of consciousness that will have influential impact that you know, when you're in all those mindless moments, when you're just sort of going through your routines and just doing things, you know, you had a great little thing about talking with someone who, you know, was like, well, how do I give up these Keurig pods?" And you're like, just try it. You know, what? how would you take, what are, what are your, some of your ideas that you might share with our listeners about actionable changes that they can make and commit to in, you know, quote unquote moments of consciousness when they're stepping back and saying, okay, how, I want to lead a more sustainable life. What are things they can do in that moment of consciousness? that are actionable, that can have a meaningful and positive, positive sustainable impact.
3: Well, I got to see with the Keurig one, I didn't say, just, just try it. What happened with her was that was a reporter who did a story on me. And after mm-hmm. the story, she came back and said, I want to do this stuff. And what can I do? And no, she didn't say what she could do. She said, I don't really know what I can do about my Keurig cups. She, she had a Keurig machine at home mm-hmm. and she was like, I don't know what to do. And I said, well. I can't say exactly what to do because I haven't solved that problem because I don't drink coffee, but I know the process is, you know, go, I forget exactly what I said, but something like see if you can go without for a week. And here's what I think will happen. And again, I can't say for sure. I think one is it might be that you stop drinking coffee and you just don't need it anymore. in, In which case problem solved. It may be that you find another solution because people have been making coffee for long before Keurig machines were around. And you'll figure out what other people have done. And I don't know, maybe it'll be something like some French press. And she says, oh, I have a French press. Someone gave it to me as a gift. It's in my closet. Okay, so here's how not to stop using Keurig. Keurig uh single-use disposable stuff. Keep using them. Here's how to stop. Stop.
1: <laughs> she
3: had the solution right there. But as long as we, pre- you know, if we are ever going to get an, a jet that can fly, or an airplane that can fly across an ocean carrying a bunch of people, you know, I had the the chief engineer of an electric plane company on, and it looks like it's never going to happen. If it's going to happen, there's like with you know, maybe stopping over in Greenland, but then you have these huge constraints. But it looks like it'll never happen. But if it's ever going to happen, here's how not to get there: keep flying with jet fuel. Mm. It's like the worst thing to do to, to get off of jet fuel is to keep using jet fuel and to keep supplying that system. Mm-hmm. So to, in those moments of consciousness, when we recognize, even someone who is heavily addicted to some of the most addictive stuff, so you know, a heroin user might, might think, they might have a moment of clarity where they think, I really want to stop this. We do, do. I mean, in my case, it's this, if you have that mindset shift, you have to start a process of continual improvement and expect that it's going to take a while. I'm something like 10 years into genuinely, authentically acting on my values here. And I'm still, I'm still, taking, I'm still filling up loads of garbage. I haven't gotten to zero yet. And it's, I'm, I'm going to be a long way off. But I hope that the next person can see that you can live in Manhattan and unplug from the electric grid. And even if you think you can't make it past two days, you can still make it into the sixth month and who knows how much longer. I hope the next people can take maybe three years or one year to do what I've done in all this time. And I hope that, you know, one of my biggest hopes is that people will hear you can unplug over half the world lives in, in cities. And most people I would think would feel like I did on May 21st before I started this can't be done. How would I even begin? What could be done? If a lot of people, even if some people think you can do that, I want to try. That's the beginning of a movement. And you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you try and you fail. And then you try and you succeed and you bring someone else along the next time. But I think you have to start with intrinsic internal motivation. If it's extrinsic, oh, New York Times says I'm supposed to avoid straws. I don't think that's going to work. That's going to reinforce the feelings. like When I hear someone say, here's one little thing you can do for the environment. Here's 10 little things you can do. I'm like, why say little?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That implies you don't want to do it. No one says drinkless driving Mondays. No one says seatbelt Tuesdays. You say always drive. If you're gonna drive, drive sober. Always, not not easy way into it. What I focus on is intrinsic motivation. What are the passions? What, when you think of moments of yourself in the environment that really matter, on the beach and mountain, in the forest, with the pet, at the park, what are the emotions there? Act on those emotions. It may lead you to do something really big. People on my podcast have said, "I'm going to go vegan right now." People have said, "I'm not." I'm, I had one executive retired, and she said, "I'm not going to buy clothes for a year." Wow! I talked to her a couple of weeks into it, and she not only was not buying clothes, she was getting rid of clothes that were in her closet that she didn't wear. And she was—this <laughs> is even funny. She was even going through her, seeing the simplicity that it brought to her life, the, the improvement to her life of getting rid of needless things. She was going through her Rolodex or whatever, you know, her, her computer Rolodex thing, and she was getting rid of contacts that weren't valuable wow. to her. And so, you know, if you look on my blog, you'll see, you'll see a bunch of stuff on the Spodek method. If you just listen to episodes of my podcast, that's I really think the best, the best way to start is to find what's inside you that matters and act on that applied to the environment. That's not enough of a description of the Spodek method.
0: <laughs> I would say values first and then acting on those values. And so like people digging into themselves to find in like, like, what are my values, right? And a lot of what you said is communicating to people that, hey, what are your values when it comes to even the environment? Like, what are your values? And, and when you do that, then what next, what action are you going to take? And, you know, just take that action. So it's pretty amazing.
3: And I want to clarify intrinsic values. Not extrinsic, because if it's just like I don't know, I want to do nice things for the world. Mm. That's not going to do it. That you know, definitely act on those values. But if for these, it has to be like in a moment when you're, I mean, when you're in the environment and it really changes you. You know, maybe it was that one time you're on the beach and the sun just hit the clouds in just that way, or sometime you're on a mountain and you climb it yourself or whatever. Like. How do you feel then and there? And those emotions, act on those emotions. Most people, when I ask them what the environment means to them, almost across the board, their answer is what they read about, about how the environment is all falling apart and all this outrage. And then they start getting into how governments, corporations should change. And it's all, you know, it's become common that we show how much we care by expressing more and more outrage. But that's not their experience with the environment. That's their experience reading the news or watching videos. Actually, in the environment, it takes a while for people to get there for a lot of people until they do. And then it's they open up and it becomes really very meaningful. But so it's not just to say, oh, I'm so outraged or I care about my kids. Of course, you care about your kids, but that's separate from you care about the environment before you had kids. It really takes a lot of, how do I put it? And I mean, experience to really walk people through this, getting them off of, how do I put it? You know, the cocktail party conversations, where we show how much we care by our outrage, but it's not really, it's not, it's still focusing on everyone else should change, but I still, uh, uh, you know, but I shouldn't. Yeah. See, if I ask someone, do you feed your dog regularly? Do you change your baby's diaper? No one feels guilty if I ask them that. And I say, do you take into account how your pollution affects others? People are like, oh, stop making me feel guilty. I'm like, I'm not. If I ask you, if you feed your dog, to me, it it feels very similar. Why would we care more about our dogs than about people? Just because they're far away? Just because I feel like I can't make a difference. Of course, I can make a difference about, about my personal actions. So when we get to a point where when someone asks you know, are, are you doing all you can people feel like oh, I'd like to do more. What more can I do? What, what more awesomeness can I bring to my life? By caring more, acting more about people. Live and let live. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Leave it better than you found it. If I give up I mean, for me, it doesn't feel like giving up anymore, but if I give up flying and in return, I get to live by the value of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that trade is worth it. Because the contrary is doing what Lincoln saw was the worst thing you can do to yourself. And and when you do it, the glory that comes with it, the the, the feeling of oneness, of connection, of we're in this together, that's what being human means. It is not, I want to go to Machu Picchu. You can't stop me. I'm just going to go. My mom lives on the other coast. What else can I do? I have to go see her. That's a really hard problem that's really hard to solve. But the only way we can do it is by facing it.
2: Speaking of, you know, like deep-seated change, but on big change, you know, one of the things that you've put forward is this idea of a constitutional amendment to, you know, here in the U S to actually ban pollution. And at one point during one of your sessions on this, you you say, if a genie offered me the opportunity to just immediately have this constitutional amendment, which creates sort of a new law of the land in place, but without popular support, I wouldn't wish for that. And it, it feels like some of what you're saying here comes back to that concept of, it has to come from a place of a deep rooted internal intrinsic. And you're almost speaking about the population itself as needing to like come to that place of perspective and our converse conversation and our perspective around things to shift so that it's not weird and odd and problematic that a father and a daughter are picking up a piece of litter in a park and that people don't react. What are you doing? That's weird. That's crazy. But in fact, that's, Normal and celebrated and commonplace, and that big shift. While we're on the topic of of the constitutional amendment construct, you know, for for our United States listeners, any words to share on that? I mean, it's it's some really compelling thought work that you put into this this construct.
3: I am not interested in any action that is not a fair democratic process. And this really hit me. I was up at Columbia University's, this is where I got my PhD. There's Lamont Doherty is one of the big research centers there. And I was up there and, and giving a talk. And I was talking to one of the scientists, and the scientists were saying, we've got to get to these senators and tell them this stuff so that they can vote, blah, 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 you know, to to vote on some legislation. I'm like, you've got to get popular support. If you're trying to sneak around the public and say, look, we know what's right, and we're going to tell the senators what's right, and they're going to act despite the fact, despite... If everyone's going around buying SUVs, the senators are gonna go with the public. And if you try to go around that, well, you know, the oil company is a lot better at it than you are. So everything has to come. And if you try to pass a law that that the public that the public doesn't want, like say prohibition, you the public's gonna go against it. That's gonna work against you. The, so if you want to have If we want to pass legislation for a carbon tax or pollution tax or various things like that, but we don't first get popular support. And and how can you get popular support if you yourself are funding through buying the plane tickets and buying the plastic bottles and all that stuff? If you're funding the pollution, you're funding the opposition. (laughs) So that's not gonna work. We have to change ourselves first. That's why why I describe government acting is the finish line of a marathon, which itself is then the beginning of yet another marathon. But at least that one, you're going downhill instead of uphill. But the reading about Lincoln led me to see, you know, I started learning more about the passage of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. This is what the movie was about. The morning, they didn't know that it was going to, the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis in an amazing acting role. And they didn't know it was going to pass, even the morning of. And it was, a hu- talk about what's up as a bipartisan, polar polarization. It was hugely, the the issue of slavery was hugely uh, divided. There was a civil war, right? This is as as Republican versus Democrat as you can get, although it switched back then. And I doubt you would find any politician today who would suggest repealing that amendment. I mean, talk about, I mean, 100% agreement. I'm, I'm sure there are a few people who'd say, let's bring back slavery there are people like that, I guess, but I've never come across one. And You're right. I doubt any politician, no politician is gonna get elected to office by saying, let's repeal the 13th amendment. So one morning, unexpectedly, I just woke up and thought, oh, and I also recognized, he described it as, I think the king's solution. He realized that there had been decades, centuries of federal legislation Judicial interpretation, I mean, the Dred Scott decision I was reading about, I, I, I learned about in school, it said that Africans were never supposed to be citizens of this country. It's widely regarded as the worst Supreme Court decision of all. Mm-hmm. And, but that's what happens when you don't have popular support. Federal legislation, state legislation, mm-hmm. judicial interpretations, executive orders, even yeah. the Emancipation Proclamation, he recognized, would not endure past the war. It was a wartime act. I mean, it was stronger, but it was like an executive order. These things don't work when the population is split. But a constitutional amendment, I view is different than legislation. The constitution is what constitutes America. And legislation follows our values. If we try to act, if we create legislation or create technology first, and hope that that will change our values later, that backfires. The same technology in one set of values will have a different outcome than in a different set of values. I mean, the cotton gin is, is like my big example here, but Eli Whitney's cotton gin allowed more output for the same labor. That could mean less labor, it could have been less slavery, but the people who were using them didn't value less slavery, they valued more profit more power. So they used it to get more power and is regarded as one of the major contributors to the civil war. The same technology could have gone one way, but the values of the people wielding it, they didn't value that. They valued power and money. So I don't want a constitutional amendment. Like if someone said you could just get a constitutional amendment, then I know that most people in this country, including most environmentalists would oppose, they would, they would continue doing what they were doing. So step one is go to the people. Start with myself. Start with ourselves. And if if I don't want to do it, what, what am I, I going to? What, what, what? Where am I going to get by passing a law that other people shouldn't do it when I'm still doing it? No one's going to vote for that. No senator's going to vote for that. No state is going to ratify that. Not when we're paying for the opposite. So we've got to change ourselves. But in in the long run, I'm divided mm. right now as to whether to present it as as a symbolic idea that, that we could strive for, or actually to say, let's get that amendment. Let's get to a place where our culture says that amendment makes total sense. To me, it does. It's crazy for a lot of people to think of a world where no one pollutes. And I've asked a lot of people, can you imagine? And I, You listening to me right now, just not just you guys, but everyone listening. Can you imagine a world where nobody pollutes? Most people that I say, that I ask, cannot imagine a world where nobody pollutes. They can, I mean, if they can, it's usually post-apocalyptic after some Mad Max outcome where we're living out of the dirt, which is actually, we did live without pollution up until, you know, roughly speaking around 17, 1800. We used lead pipes, which would pollute, but by and large, we didn't pollute. And in that time, we went from something like a thousand individuals, homo sapiens, to just about a billion, six continents living above the Arctic circle in that time, finding anesthesia and septic systems and systems of hygiene. We got heard, had the germ theory of disease. We don't have to leave any of that stuff up. And vaccines. So people think we have to return to the stone age to not pollute. That's, that's a failure of imagination. And that failure of imagination is one of the biggest problems. It it may be our biggest problem. If you ask someone to pollute less, when they believe that the end result of polluting less is a dystopic hellscape or return to the stone age where mothers are dying in childbirth and 30 years old age and there's no hospitals and everyone's dying. If you get a cut, then you have to amputate because of gangrene. Antibiotics existed long before pollution did. But if that's the vision that someone has, they'll be like, oh yeah, sure, I'll go without straws for a little while. Sure, if that makes you happy. But that's where it ends because I'm not going to go any farther than that. I don't want to give up. I don't want to have to live in the mud and die at 30. And that's unable to imagine the world that actually lived, the world that brought us Buddha and Lao Tzu and Aristotle and Shakespeare and Bach and Jesus, Muhammad, you guys got me going. It's... I hope I don't sound too high horse. It's really, there's a glory, there's a a fun and a freedom and a greater connection to family and and community that it's rousing. I've never read a bunch of facts that got me there. And, you know, just avoiding packaged food and then just going for a long time. The joy of eating an apple is really great. I can't overstate it. And that's what I'm sharing.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I feel very inspired. And I'm sure that Brian and Leaky here are also inspired by a lot of what you've shared. was just wondering if there are any last words that you'd like to leave before we close out on this episode.
3: Well, I'm going to riff on you saying you were inspired. One of the things that got my podcast started was Seth himself being a guest on my podcast. And I actually went up, I gambled and I said, I'll go to where you are. And I took the train up. He met me at the train station and he was coming from the farmer's market, carrying a whole load of vegetables, like these vegetables and recorded together at his place. And he's very infectious. You know, like, I want to do that too. And very inspirational in that way. Also activating people. And so I'm going to see if I can activate people listening to this. On my podcast and in my leadership consulting training work, I like to work with very influential people bring them on the podcast to act on their environmental values so that other can say, oh, someone that I know is doing it. If people listening to me now know, you know, CEOs, especially of polluting companies, elected officials, star athletes, star singers, star actors, people with large followings, and they do not have to have experience or knowledge in environmental anything or sustainability anything. Most of them don't. Then I'd love to have them as guests on the podcast or if they're in an organization and they're looking themselves to change that organization, they could use this mindset shift followed by continual improvement themselves. I would like a coach, put them in touch with me and I'd love to have them as guests. I'd love to work with them and help them change so that they feel the joy that I do and share that and and that intrinsic motivation and that fun and freedom and joy and community and purpose. And that that's what leads us. Yeah, there's a sense of obligation, but really coming from intrinsic, internal joy. I'd love to help them get there. And so if they go to joshuaspodak.com in the upper right corner is to contact and connect with me, and that's the best way to find me.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much.
3: And I'm doing this inspired from Seth because he's so much, I want to do that too. Like, oh, I want to bring my friends in on it.
2: He is an infectious personality and that power can be powerful.
0: It's it's that multiplier effect. Yeah. And and isn't that what we need to get a lot of people started? I think that's exactly what we need. Thank you so much, Josh. Again, I'm sure that everyone listening to this has also been inspired and, and will be inspired, you know, listening after on. That's so great. And I feel like we should do this again. Right. So I'm looking forward to another conversation with you sometime. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And see you next time. It's
3: been wonderful for me. I hope I didn't talk too much.
1: You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation,